Hello, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at KFF Health News, and I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We are taping this week on Thursday, April 13th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast, really fast this week, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. We are joined today by video conference by Victoria Knight of Axios. Good morning. Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Hi, Julie. And Shafali Luthra of The 19th. Hello. Well, no interview this week, but spring is busting out all over with health news, so we will get right to it. We will begin in Texas with that court case that we've been saying for the last few weeks we hadn't gotten a decision in. Well, we got a decision uh, last Friday night around dinner time, and then very early this morning, that's Thursday, we got an appeals court decision too, but let's take them one at a time. Last Friday night, in an opinion that was shocking but not surprising, as many people put it, Trump-appointed federal district judge Matthew Kaczmarek effectively rolled back the Food and Drug Administration's 22-plus-year-old approval of Mifepristone. That's the first of two pills used for medication abortion early in pregnancy. Literally within the hour, federal district judge Thomas Rice in Spokane, Washington, ruled in a separate case brought by a group of about a dozen and a half state attorneys general, basically the opposite, ordering the FDA not to alter the current availability of the drug. Judge Kaczmarek in Texas very kindly stayed his stay until this Friday to allow the Biden administration to appeal to the also very conservative Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And in the wee hours of today, Thursday, an appeals court panel ruled that while this lawsuit proceeds, Mifepristone can continue to be sold, but only under the extremely onerous restrictions that were in effect until 20. 16. Shivali, where does that leave us? It's kind of a mess, isn't it? It is a huge mess, and the implications will be really significant. Um, in particular, the 2016 restrictions on mifepristone don't allow telemedicine. You have to go in person to a doctor to get the medication, and you can only use it up to seven weeks of pregnancy when all of the evidence we have, including from the World Health Organization, says 10 weeks, sometimes maybe even 11. And I mean, we know realistically that people are taking mifepristone far later in pregnancy now because they can't access legal abortion. And what this is going to do if it takes effect is it's going to put a real strain on abortion clinics in states that have become destinations, right? The ones that are seeing so many out-of-state patients that largely do medication abortions because it's easier, it's faster, it pays a little bit better, all of these reasons that you do it and that have really come to rely on telemedicine Either they will have to take much longer to do this process and only do it for a handful of the patients they're seeing, or they'll switch to what we've talked about before, the misoprostol-only regimen, which is more painful, which is less effective, still very good at terminating a pregnancy, but has a higher failure rate. And what clinics have told me is very often they expect that patients, when they hear that these are their options, will opt for a procedural abortion instead because that they know will absolutely work. And if they have to go home, they don't worry about coming back to the clinic and worrying that they need an abortion again. I just want to put in the caveat that, you know, off-label use, which is where doctors prescribe a drug for use not approved for FDA, is something they do have sort of the discretion to do in practice of medicine once the product's available. So the rollback is significant, but practically a lot of doctors will have the flexibility to still treat patients up to the longer time frame. And people have pointed out this morning that Actually, many doctors were doing that prior to FDA formally expanding the approval. 
And to your point, many states have been stocking up on mifepristone in particular, and so have many abortion clinics, and they plan to use it as long as they can. The real challenge, I think, will be if there are supply issues at some point or other sorts of decisions from the Supreme Court, et cetera, or enforcement actions that essentially don't allow telemedicine anymore. What it looks like the Fifth Circuit has done is made it much harder for people in states where there are abortion bans to go to other states or to not go to another state, but get the abortion pill because they've banned it by mail. They've basically stopped in its tracks what we've been talking about for weeks, the ability of pharmacies to start to distribute it because until 2016, you had to go, the doctor had to physically hand you the pill, which is what we are back to. And there have to be three visits in order to complete a medication abortion. These were all sort of the pre-2016 requirements. And the big question, though, is in what Washington state, the requirement was that the FDA not change any of the relaxed restrictions. And now the Fifth Circuit has said, yes, you will. So this still is on a fast track to the Supreme Court, right? It feels very likely this is going to be decided by the Supreme Court. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we hear about an appeal today. I wouldn't be surprised if we hear about it tomorrow. It feels like really this could have changed between us taping and the podcast releasing. (laughs) I I think that's entirely possible. (laughs) So one of the things we thought Judge Kaczmarek might do was order the FDA to basically restart its approval process for mifepristone, since his reasoning for rescinding, essentially, the drug's approval is that the FDA violated its own procedures. Ironically, this decision came in a week when the FDA did withdraw the approval of a drug, a medication to prevent preterm birth called Makina. Sarah, what's this drug and why is the FDA pulling it off the market? And this is how it's supposed to work, right? Yes, supposed to work, baby, is a stretch depending on how some people felt about McKenna. They felt it took way too long for FDA to withdraw it. So two sides of a coin, I suppose. But after a very long process, FDA finally pulled a drug that is given to women with the idea that it might help them deliver later once their baby was full term and prevent complications that come from having a premature birth. Unfortunately, over the years, as more clinical research was done on the drug, it appeared that it was not actually doing that. And as like all drugs, there are some side effects and FDA basically ended up deciding, you know, absent any benefit, all you have is risk and this drug should not be pulled off the market. So it was finally pulled off the market after quite a lengthy process this week, right? It was still this week or was it? No, it was last week. <laughs> I think it was it's last like week. Time, time <laughs> is very hard Time here. is a very flat circle right now. Yeah. So and unfortunately, it was really the only approved product that could possibly prevent preterm birth. And FDA really tried to recognize that and understand that people would be frustrated without options. But they tried to really emphasize the point that having an ineffective option is not the answer to that problem. The answer there is to push for more research on other products or even on this product to figure out if there's a population of women it might benefit. So I wanted to mention that because obviously the mifepristone ruling has the impact to affect much, much more than just abortion drugs. Individual drug companies are, to use the vernacular, freaking out about the idea that they could spend millions of dollars to shepherd a drug through clinical trials and the FDA approval process, only to see it banned because some small group of people object to it for some non-medical reason. Um, Sarah, you cover the FDA. Is this freak out warranted right now? I do think most people think it is. And, you know, even in my preliminary look at what the Fifth Circuit did this morning, I think that freakout is still going to continue. 
because they seem to still give like this wide breadth that would allow many people to have the ability to challenge FDA approval decisions for any drug and then let judges weigh in who may not have the expertise and based on the science and all that other stuff that FDA has. So I think as this case has proceeded, there's still this underlying threat to the FDA's authority and how they make decisions. Again, in the Texas case, he wasn't trying to push it back to FDA and say, "Okay, FDA, you go review this drug and decide again whether it needs to do it. And then, you know, set them up for a McKenna-like process where they would have to go through it. You know, they were trying to fast track and overrule FDA's authority. And if you read some of the details of the brief, you can really understand why it freaks out pharma and the FDA so much, because you can just tell how little the judge gets about how drugs are approved, the science, the regulatory process and so forth. And basically that you have have judges who are making medical and scientific decisions for which they are observably not qualified. Right. And I mean, if nothing else, industries like stability, they like predictability. So there's just this element of incredible unpredictability when you would have all these judges and potential legal cases throughout the country that would make it hard for them to deal with and figuring out how to defend their products. So the FDA is obviously in an impossible situation here. They cannot satisfy both the Washington decision and the Court of Appeals decision because one says you can't roll it back and one says you have to roll it back. Do we have any idea what the FDA is going to true here? I don't know that we do. I mean, the Biden administration has said that they will follow the court orders, but the court orders are in conflict. So it seems like there there should be some more clarity perhaps that we get. We, as of taping, haven't gotten any statement from the president or the vice president or HHS. So we'll keep an eye out and see if they have even just words of wisdom to offer about what this means or how they feel about the decision. But at this point, a lot is still quite confusing. So the Biden administration did take other action on abortion this week. In some separate steps, it announced Wednesday a series of new privacy protections for women and providers seeking or giving reproductive health care. How big a deal are these new rules which sort of expand the HIPAA privacy rules? And why did it take them almost a year to do this? Hadn't they been talking about this like right after the Dobbs ruling? They had been talking about this for a while. And what they said was that they believed that the guidance they had given to providers was sufficient to protect patient privacy. That has clearly not been the case because we have continued to hear from people seeking abortions and from the healthcare providers giving them that they do not feel safe, right? They constantly have this fear that if I put something in someone's medical record about an abortion, someone else might see it and it could get reported. So this should make that very clear beyond the guidance that was given out last summer, should make very clear that if you get an abortion, your doctor does not have to and should not tell any law enforcement about what happened. I think this has the potential to be really significant because one thing that we hear constantly from the people who are traveling out of state is they are terrified that they are breaking the law and that someone is going to find them, even though... That they are breaking the law of their home state. Mm -hmm. Even though, of course, the home state laws do not criminalize the people who are seeking abortions. Yes. Well, I want to turn to the politics before we leave all of this. Democrats at all level of government were quick to decry this decision as wrong, anti-democratic, small d, and various other things. Republicans were a lot slower to react. How big a problem is abortion becoming for the Republican Party? They seem to be getting even more split on, gee, we thought that maybe overturning Roe was what we wanted and we were going to leave it at that. And apparently anti-abortion activists are not leaving it at that. I mean, I think a great example of how how Republicans are trying to navigate this problem is Congresswoman Nancy Mace, who we may all recall the day that Roe was overturned, put out a statement like so many Republicans saying that this was a great decision, very 
good for the country, the right step forward, and has since then tried very deliberately to walk away from that and to recalibrate her image on abortion and was one of the ones to come out this week and denounce the opinion from the district court in Texas. Republicans who are willing to praise the decision in particular to take medication abortion off the market or to further restrict it, which is so unpopular, are finding themselves in a really tough spot. This is a winning issue for them, and all they can really hope, and what we saw in the midterms, is to not talk about it and to try and change the subject to something else. I think important to note also that there were a good number of Republicans in Congress I think it was 69 that signed on to an amicus brief, both supporting the original lawsuit, this Texas lawsuit, and then also this decision when it came out. Right. This is an amicus brief to the yeah, Court of Appeals, it, yeah, urging yeah, them to uphold the original decision. Yeah, there were two amicus briefs and a good number of congressional Republicans. Yeah, first for the original court case and then for the appeals. But it was very noticeable that most of the Republican offices did not issue any kind of statement when this decision came out last week. So they're fine supporting, putting documentation forward supporting it, but they're not broadcasting it, if that makes sense. And so I think that was very telling. It really was only um, Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, who is the Senate lead of the pro-life caucus that put something out, but it was very quiet among the rest of the Republicans. Yeah. I noticed with that amicus brief, it's like, okay, they're going to say on the download to the anti-abortion activists, we're with you, but we really don't want to publicize this because it's not terribly popular with a lot of people. To build on that, one example of someone who is really trying to walk that line and and seems like is maybe facing challenges is Ron DeSantis, right? The person who did this compromise ban last year, the 15-week abortion ban, and now has clearly realized that if you want to be a nationally prominent Republican with support from the very powerful anti-abortion movement, you can't do that. You need to be more over in your disapproval of abortion and willingness to restrict access. But at the same time... Well, you're anticipating my next question, which is that there is other abortion news this week. Uh, And in Florida, the legislature seems like it's on the cusp of approving a six-week abortion ban to supplant the 15-week abortion ban it passed last year. And the aforementioned Governor DeSantis says he will sign that if it comes to him. But Shafali, you've written about this. This could impact a lot more than just the people of Florida, right? I think it's really important to note that Florida is the third biggest state in the country. And currently the biggest state in the eastern south part of the country where abortion is legal, even if it is only available up to 15 weeks. I have been to the clinics in Florida. It is stunning how crowded they are. There are people coming from all over the south. People are working until midnight to try and see every patient they can. And without Florida, the options are are North Carolina and South Carolina. South Carolina clinics, there are very few of them and they don't go very far, not because of current state laws, but just because of the providers in the state. North Carolina is also looking likely to have some kind of abortion ban passed this year and, again, has way fewer clinics in Florida. If Florida is banning abortion after six weeks, a very, very large chunk of the country is going to be almost entirely displaced. The math just doesn't really work, and we don't know where people will be able to get abortions other than traveling, frankly, to Virginia, to D.C., to New York, and to all the places that so far, data shows haven't been as affected by out-of-state travelers. And of course, with the Court of Appeals decision basically saying that you can't mail the abortion pills and that you can't do it by telemedicine, I mean, which is not to say that people aren't going to continue to get them by mail. It's just that it won't be 
FDA sanctioned the way it was going to be. So Idaho is also making abortion news. This feels like an afterthought, even though last week it seemed like a big deal. They have enacted a bill there creating the crime of abortion trafficking, which is the act of any adult transporting a minor for an abortion without her parents' consent. Now, in the late 1990s and the early aughts, Republicans in the U.S. Congress tried unsuccessfully to pass something called the Child Custody Protection Act, which would have criminalized taking a minor across state lines for an abortion. But Idaho can't do that. Only the federal government can regulate interstate travel. So this Idaho law just applies to the in-state portion of the trip. But it could still be a big deterrent, right? Unless you live right on the border. If you're trying to take somebody out of state, you're going to have to do part of it in-state. I mean, of course. And I mean, Julie, I wanted to ask you about this because this is not actually a new kind of restriction. There are a bunch of states that have passed these quote unquote child trafficking laws that restrict minors traveling out of state for abortion. Idaho is the first one to do it post Dobbs. But for some reason, the anti-abortion movement has always had far more success in restricting access to minors. I think we're all paying more attention now because we realize that this could, in fact, be the first step toward that thing that Justice Kavanaugh said would not happen, right? the larger scale restriction of travel out of state for abortions. Yeah. Restricting abortion for minors has been sort of the soft spot for the anti-abortion movement really from the very beginning, because even people who consider themselves in favor of abortion rights, as we've seen this year with books. You know, parents are really like, we want to be in charge of our daughters. And if my daughter needs my permission to get her ears pierced, she should need my permission to get an abortion or, God forbid, travel out of state or get contraception. This is actually, it's the minor issue that's the reason that the Title X, the family planning program, has not been reauthorized by Congress since 1984, which was before I started covering it. (laughs) It's my favorite piece of reproductive health trivia, because every time Congress tried to do it, they got hung up over this question of should minors be able to get contraception without their parents' approval. It is a continuing thing, but I think Idaho probably got more attention because they call this abortion trafficking. So we have a new law. All right. Well, there actually is other news this week that does not have to do with abortion. Congress next week will return from its two-week Easter Passover break. And apparently at the top of the agenda in the Senate is a bill focusing on drug prices and particularly on pharmacy benefit managers. Even the Republican-led House is looking at PBM legislation. Sarah, remind us, what are PBMs and why are they so very unpopular among both Democrats and Republicans? So PBMs are companies contracted by your health insurance company or now at this point often owned by your health insurance company that administer your pharmacy benefits and they create the formularies that decide what drugs are covered and how much you are going to pay for them. And then they negotiate deals with pharmaceutical companies to try and lower the prices of drugs. And they also have to work with the pharmacies. So they're called middlemen, often in a not very nice way. The drug industry has definitely tried to paint them as the key reason prices are too high, saying they give them discounts, but they're not passing them on to patients. It's a bit more complicated than that. PBMs essentially say they do pass on that money to patients in the U.S. system, but it ends up lowering everybody's premium. So not necessarily the person who's paying for the high cost drug. Of course, it's a lot more complicated because this is an industry, I think, surrounded by a lack of transparency. So it's been hard for people, I think, to verify who's getting that money and is it all really going to patients? And then, like I mentioned, this consolidation with health insurance companies, with parts of the pharmacy system as well, has started to raise a lot of kind of 
antitrust concerns and, again, that they may not be working in patients' best interests. And a lot of this legislation is about transparency, right? It's about sort of opening the black box of how PBMs set drug prices and negotiate with drug companies and pass these things along to ensure you nodding, Victoria. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of different bills floating out there. There's some that have passed out of committee in previous Congress that passed out of committee again, most notably a Senate Commerce bill, Chuck Grassley and Maria, Maria Cantwell. Um, and that just passed out of committee and that would implement some transparency measures, also ban the practice of spread pricing. There is some talk that Schumer may put a health package on the floor sometime soon. And um, so PBMs are going to potentially be a big part of that. There's also supposed to be a markup sometime this month out of um, the Health Education Labor Pensions Committee, where they also are talking about PBMs. So it's interesting that there is a real movement on both sides of the aisle, um, also in the House, on PBM. So, so they want to put some blame on high drug prices on someone. And right now it seems to be PBMs. And it looks like they're going to go after insulin again, too, right? In the bill that passed last year, they managed to cap insulin costs at $35 a month, but only for people on Medicare. So I guess this is the attempt to come back and require lower insulin prices for others. We will point out that many of the companies have voluntarily lowered some insulin prices, but looks like Congress not done with this yet, right? No, it's not done with it yet. Bernie Sanders is apparently going to haul some insulin execs in to have to testify, um, even though they've are, so they've committed to lowering prices. And it's also mentioned in the potential Schumer package that $35 cap for everyone is supposed to be a part of it. And there's also a lot of insulin $35 cap bills floating around. There is some Republican support in the Senate for that. Um, there were some Republicans last year that voted for that. But I think the House will be the the bigger issue because there doesn't seem to be as much Republican support in the House for, for a cap that extends to everyone. Yeah. But I, I mean, when we said sort of back in January that there might be some things that they could do on a bipartisan basis, it sounds like we're starting to see some of them now that it's spring blooming. So <laughs> anything else that, that you're looking for this next session between, you know, Easter and Memorial Day? Um, I think also, I don't know how much people are paying attention to this, but there is going to be one of the select subcommittee COVID hearings next week on and they're bringing in some intelligence officials to talk about COVID origins. So I think this is the first hearing with actual like intelligence officials. So I think it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. And obviously, there's a lot of talk around like that practical policy implications are that Congress could kind of restrict NIH funding or how NIH gives out research funding because of all this talk around gain of function research in regards to COVID origins. So I think that's what we're watching for rather than just the rhetoric around it. Like what are the actual how could it play out in regards to NIH funding? And then, of course, I can't forget debt ceiling negotiations and work requirements are still very much being talked about for, for Medicaid, Medicaid and um, also SNAP potentially. So um, there was reporting this morning from Punchbowl saying that work requirements are very much still in the proposals that are being kicked around. So another thing to watch. May is traditionally a very busy month on Capitol Hill, particularly May of the odd-numbered year, the, the first year of a Congress. So I imagine we'll see a lot. One last thing I want to talk about this weekend, we haven't talked about it for a while, but the toll of gun injuries just continues to mount. In the past three weeks, we've had mass shootings with multiple fatalities in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Florida. 
In Louisville, in fact, the mayor, who himself survived a mass shooting last year, lost a close friend in the shooting this week. So it's not all that surprising that a new poll from my colleagues over the editorial firewall at KFF found that gun violence is so common that more than one in five Americans say they have personally been threatened by a gun. Nearly as many say a family member has been killed by a gun. 17% say they have personally witnessed someone being shot. The numbers are even worse for people of color. Nearly a third of black adults have witnessed someone being shot, and more than a third have lost a family member to gun violence. We seem to have acknowledged finally that gun violence is a public health problem, yet that hasn't brought us any closer as a society to solving it. I mean, we we're just talking about the things that Congress might be looking at in terms of health care in the spring, but gun violence isn't really one of them, is it? Yeah, I think you've seen from the Biden administration and acknowledgement from both sides of the aisle in Congress that the bipartisan bill that passed last year, which gave a lot of money towards mental health funding and also allowed states the option to implement red flag laws and and some other smaller gun safety things. They kind of acknowledge that's as far as they're going to be able to go in the current makeup of this Congress. So uh, it seems like a stalemate and it's kind of like now on a state level. Um, And there was some talk from Tennessee's governor about doing some small things, perhaps, after the shooting in Nashville. But it doesn't seem like there's much movement. And of course, in Tennessee, it was fighting about not doing anything about guns that erupted in that whole conflagration with people getting uh, evicted from the Tennessee state legislature and then reappointed. And yeah, I mean, that people may not remember that's actually over a gun demonstration or a lack of gun legislation demonstration. So who knows whether anyone will find something to do about it. All right. That is the news for this week. Now it's time for our extra credit segment. That's when we each recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too. As always, don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links on the podcast page at khn.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. Uh, Sarah, why don't you go first this week? Sure. I looked at an NBC News story called Conspiracy Theorists Made Tiffany Dover into an anti-vaccine icon. She's finally ready to talk about it. This was a nurse who was one of the first people to receive a COVID vaccine when it first became available. And apparently, I guess this is something that's been a problem for her. She says throughout her whole life, sometimes with certain pain reactions, she faints. Um, And the story also talks about how she hadn't really eaten much that day. But basically, it was filmed and shared quite widely, including all over social media and anti-vaccine activists basically took it and were using it sort of as proof of the harm caused by the vaccines. And the reaction to that from the hospital and herself to some degree was basically to just kind of keep quiet and not respond. There was very little pushback. The, The idea was kind of if we ignore it, it will go away. But that just kept fueling everything. And basically, people thought she might have even been dead and no one was telling. They thought, the hospital was using her coworker as sort of a body double to show proof of life. And a couple of years later, she's finally trying to talk about what that experience was like and make clear again, she was fine. She was healthy. You know, she was more than happy to get the vaccine, you know, would do it again and stuff. But it's, it's a really interesting story because I think the journalists sort of go through again how we've been sort of grappling as a society with how to respond to this type of misinformation and how some of the normal kind of PR playbook strategies are actually hurting, not helping public health. So we need to kind of shift to figure out how to handle that. 
And there are lots and lots and lots of these stories about people who, you know, quote unquote, died when they got the vaccine who are perfectly fine and walking around. It was it was really well done story. Um, It's just it's really kind of scary. Victoria, my extra credit this week is a story in The Washington Post by David Wellman and Joby Warbick is called Research with Exotic Viruses Risk a Deadly Outbreak, Scientists Warn. And so it's basically kind of an in-depth look at how over the years the U.S. has funded virus research where in other countries where people go out into like forests and wildlife areas and collect bat samples, collect samples from different animals to try to kind of predict the next pandemic. And it profiles this one team in Thailand who has said, we're not accepting U.S. funds anymore. They told the U.S. in 2021 after COVID, this feels too risky for us and we They have been doing this research funded by the U.S. for for years, and they really felt like they hadn't found much tangible benefit out of it either. So they're kind of like, it's not worth the risk to our employees and potentially creating another pandemic on our own. And And just to be clear, this isn't gain-of-function research, This is not even gain-of-function research. This is a different kind of potentially dangerous research. Yeah, this is really just going out in the wild and and collecting samples from animals that are out there already. But yeah, it's not doing research in a lab that's like altering a virus necessarily. So yeah, uh, and and so the story is kind of reckoning like what is the balance between wanting to do scientific research and needing that knowledge for the future and the safety of employees and and the general public. So um, and it talked about how there is like the U.S. does fund quite a bit of this kind of research around the world. And the pace of that has not always kept up with regulation and oversight. And so um, just kind of probing question, especially as I talked about earlier, Congress does look into this issue of um, gain of function research and just the NIH funding research around the world in general. I feel like this whole week has been, or where do government and science cross? <laughs> Shafali. My story is from the well-named KFF Health News. It is called, For Uninsured People with Cancer, Securing Care Can Be Like Spinning a Roulette Wheel. It's by Charlotte Huff. It's a really, really great look at what happens when you get cancer, and in particular, live in a state that didn't expand Medicaid. Charlotte just does a really great job looking at the experiences that this woman has when she develops skin cancer and has recommended all these treatments that she can't afford. She lives in South Carolina. She's not eligible for Medicaid because they didn't expand eligibility. And what it really gets into is the idea that there are a couple of cancers where you will get treatment, but for most of them, you will not get coverage. You have to pay thousands, sometimes tens of thousands out of pocket. And it's a really well done, devastating look at what healthcare costs mean in our system and how much access really is for so much of healthcare based on where you happen to live. Yeah, it really is. It's a really wonderful story. Well, my story is also from the Washington Post and it's called To Comply with the New Sesame Allergy Law, Some Businesses Add Sesame by Karen Weiss. So back in 2004, I covered the deliberation and passage of the Food Allergen Labeling and Consumer Protection Act, which for the first time required companies to put on the label in plain English if their products contained any of the eight major food allergies which are milk, eggs, fish, shellfish, tree nuts, peanuts, wheat, and soybeans. It was an enormous relief, particularly to parents of young children with allergies and to 
anyone with a food allergy that could be fatal. So the law also required food companies to label whether there was a chance that the product could have been cross-contaminated with one of those allergens. That's why you sometimes see on a label, you know, quote, this product was produced in a facility that also makes milk products or that uses nuts um, or some such thing. The law has worked pretty well, say those who fought for it. And in 2021, Congress added sesame to the list of allergens that had to be labeled. Uh, Except that this time something weird happened. Many food companies, rather than carefully cleaning and monitoring their plants to ensure there would be no cross-contamination with sesame, instead are basically evading the law's intent by adding small amounts of sesame flour to their products and then putting on the label that this product contains sesame. It's dangerous for a lot of reasons, but mainly because for people with sesame allergies who have eaten certain products without problems for years, they may not realize that to them at least a poison has been added to their favorite bread or roll or whatever kind of product. So this is something that I imagine Congress is going to want to go back and take a look at. All right. Before we go this week, you may have noticed that the introduction to the podcast has been tweaked. That's because we have a new name. Kaiser Health News has been retired as of this week. We are KFF Health News to reflect that we are an editorially independent program of KFF, also a new name, and that neither of us is connected in any way to that big HMO Kaiser Permanente. I hope you will bear with us as we all get used to the change. Okay, that is our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ever-patient producer, Francis Yang. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me, at least for the moment. I am still at Jay Rovner. Victoria? At Victoria Regis K. Sarah? At Sarah Carlin. Shafali at Shafali L. We will be back in your feed next week. Until then, be healthy. Be healthy.